Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. This is Marianne Sullivan, and today I will be talking to Dia Andreu and Brooke DeKolf of Richmond Law and Policy about two cases they are currently handling regarding the sustainability claims being made by Aldi, the supermarket, regarding the salmon that Aldi sells in their stores. They will explain why there are two cases, one in federal court in Illinois and one in Superior Court of the District of Columbia, why industry definitions of sustainability don't have any anything to do with what most people think that word means, and you will be surprised to hear how broadly most people interpret it. Why the conditions in which these salmon live and die are so bad, and how consumer protection law is becoming such an important tool for those seeking to use the law to address what we are doing to animals. Before we get to the interview, I'd just like to quickly ask for your support for Our Hen House, which is, of course, the not-for-profit that produces this podcast along with the Our Hen House podcast. And if you can help out, please go to ourhenhouse.org slash donate. There you can join our flock for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make whatever donation you can afford and are comfortable with. We would be so very grateful. And while you're there, if you're not already a listener of Our Hen House, which is our other podcast, please check it out. Our one recent interview that you cannot miss, you really cannot, is episode 654 with Jack Lekishan, who is an amazing Kenyan Maasai vegan activist. And there's also Jasmine Singer's interview on episode 650 with comedian Zach Sherwin, where they examine the crucial question, can vegans be funny? The answer is, I I think the answer was yes. (laughs) Or my interview on episode 653 with Monica Engebretson from Cruelty Free International, where we discuss the amazing amount of progress that has been made and, and even more so, which looks like it is about to be made in the near future in getting animals out of cosmetics testing and other hideous types of testing and experimentation. It does seem like there is one area in which the animal rights movement is making real progress. Uh, I'd also like to mention just something that you might be interested in, doesn't have anything to do with us, but I don't know whether you know that the University of Denver has an animal law program, and they recently announced uh, a new activist defense project, and they're hiring for two positions with it. According to this announcement, the University of Denver animal law program is proud to announce the launch of its activist defense project. The project will provide legal representation for activists seeking to advance the rights and status of non-human animals animals. And I can't think of anything that is more needed right now in this fraught time of activists being arrested and and convicted of, of, of crimes. These two jobs are the director of strategic initiatives and staff attorney. They say that there were competitive salaries. And uh, I think that you can find them at jobs.du.edu. And then you have to scroll down. I just thought you might be interested. There might be somebody out there who's dying to do that job. I'm kind of dying to do it myself. We also have a brief but informative chat with Liberty Mulcahy, conference manager of the Animal Law Conference, who will give us a glimpse into the speakers and panels of this year's 30th anniversary event. And here it is. Welcome to our Hen House, Liberty. Thanks so much, Marianne. Excited to be here today. I'm thrilled to have you here, and I'm thrilled to hear about the 30th anniversary Animal Law Conference. Tell us a little bit about the history, and then we'll get into who's going to be there this year. So the conference has a long history. Both the Animal Legal Defense Fund and Lewis and Clark Law School used to host animal law conferences for years and years. And and then back in 2013, 
the Animal Legal Defense Fund and the Center for Animal Law Studies decided to join forces and create what's now the Animal Law Conference. And it's it became an annual event that was co-hosted by the two groups. And it takes place every other year in Portland, Oregon. And then we're on the road on the, the odd years in various locations. Where will it be this year? This year, we're going to be back. We're really excited to be back in person for the first time in two years in Portland. And we're going to be hosting the conference this November. Incredibly beautiful campus of Lewis and Clark Law School. Just a lovely place. And it's always such a great conference. And while many... If then most of the attendees are lawyers and or law students, there are also many non-lawyers who who attend as well. And your speakers aren't always completely law oriented, and that's true this year as well. And the theme for this year is building a brighter future. I like your optimism. Yeah, we designed the um, the agenda this year with that theme in mind, and we really wanted to be visionary in our approach to look at the the subject. So. For this anniversary year, we thought we'd not only reflect on the milestones and accomplishments that have been gained over the last 30 years in the field, but also look forward to how we can blaze a path and what we can accomplish in the next 30 years. We still have a lot to do. That's for sure. We do. So tell us about some of the um, the speakers, because you have a great lineup. Yeah, we do. And we're, uh, you know, we're really excited to be back in person this year. We actually, we're not going to be on the Lewis and Clark law school campus. We're going to be in downtown Portland. We outgrew that campus because the, the conference became so popular that um, that now we host it at, at hotels. So we're going to be at the Hilton downtown. We do have a really exciting agenda planned this year. So we've got 10 sessions. Um, we're going to be hearing from our keynote speaker this year is going to be Miyoko Shinner, who I'm sure all of your listeners know well, but she's been at the forefront of creating change for farmed animals, creates just the most delicious plant-based dairy foods. And has had some uh, unbelievable legal challenges along the way, which I'm sure she'll be talking about. Yes, she absolutely will be. You know, she's going to be talking about all of that work that she's done. She'll be the keynote speaker, but you also have, you. I think you mentioned that you have 10 different sessions. Can you tell us a, a, a bit about some of them? Joyce Tischler, I believe, one yes. of everybody's favorites, um, will be there. Which, what will she be talking about? So she's going to be on a panel that's, that's going to look at how we can achieve a moonshot for farmed animals. So she's going to really set the stage for how we've gotten to where we are today and how we can use that momentum to move forward to really achieve change for farmed animals over the next 30 years. And on that panel with Joyce, we're going to have Leah Garces of Mercy for Animals, and she's going to discuss her work to transition industrial animal agriculture to plant-based farms through the Transformation Project. And then with the two of them, Piper Hoffman will be joining them on that panel from Animal Outlook. And among other things, she'll talk about a Pennsylvania court victory that recognized that conduct at a dairy farm could constitute aggravated animal cruelty. We interviewed folks from Animal Outlook about that very case on the Animal Law Podcast, and it's a fascinating, fascinating case. I love the idea that the panel on farm animals and a moonshot, I love the idea of a moonshot, and I love the idea that it's it's involving a case involving cruelty laws, because I think that they, they still have much work to do to represent farm animals in the courts. And that sounds exciting. What else? 
Yeah, that's definitely one you won't want to miss. Um, we're also going to have a panel that's going to look at strides that have been been made within politics for animals. So while the animal issues was once viewed as more of a fringe issue, now animal protection is regarded as a valid area of inquiry directed at candidates. So this panel is going to look at how other countries are already including animals in their platforms and how candidates are now routinely asked about their views in debates. So on that panel, we're going to hear from an elected legislator. So we'll have Assemblyman Dan Benson of New Jersey's 14th District with us. And we'll have an elected prosecutor, Nicole Harris, who is the deputy DA of Multnomah County's DA's office. And we'll also have a lobbyist, Solomon Malik of Peak Government Affairs. So they'll look at how animals and animal issues really play into legislative and political campaigns now. That is great. That's a, such a useful thing for anybody to learn about because anybody can lobby. People don't realize that, but anybody can lobby. So everybody there should be learning something from that. One other panel that I'd love to tell you about is going to feature Rachel Bale, who is the executive editor for Animals and the manager of Wildlife Watch at National Geographic. And joining her on that panel is going to be Gladys Kemasanyu, who is the chief magistrate for Uganda's wildlife court. And the two of them are going to discuss the impacts of human conflict on animal populations. So, you know, there's so much conflict going on in the world today and how that affects wild animals and also issues that can arise when humans and wildlife live in close proximity to each other. Yeah. And one of the things I always love about the conference is that it does have so many international aspects. And that is because of all of the international work, of course, that the Center for Animal Law Studies does. Before I let you go, any anybody else to highlight? Oh, there's so many to highlight. Maybe I'll just pull out a few other topics as a teaser for people who might be interested. So we're going to be talking about how science can improve the legal outcomes for animals. And we're also going to be addressing personhood and standing. We're going to be looking at the future of animal law education. And we're also going to focus on the role and future of animal sanctuary, why we need animal sanctuaries, what's missing, how that can play, you know, when we work on cases and we're trying to, uh, trying to rescue animals from these terrible situations, there isn't always an appropriate place for them to live out their lives after they're rescued. So, so, so many exciting things that are going to be on the agenda this year. Yeah, I love that you're talking about sanctuaries. They are such an enormously important and sometimes undervalued, both very valued, very beloved, but undervalued for their policy work. So that's a very exciting topic that I love being dealt with at a, at a policy conference like this. Can you tell people how to, uh, when, is, when it's going to be, where it's going to, well, you told us where it's going to be, but how they can find out more about it and register? Absolutely. So it's going to be November 4th through 6th this year in Portland, Oregon. So we're hosting at the downtown Portland Hilton Hotel. And it is a hybrid event. So people can attend in person or they can watch the live stream or watch sessions on demand from their homes. We have continuing legal education credits for attorneys attending. We have an hour of ethics. So there are 13 continuing legal education credits. For all of the information about the conference and for people to register, they can visit the conference website, which is animallawconference.org. And one other thing I want to mention for students that are attending the conference, and we do have a large um, portion of students that attend, 
We have a pre-event, which is the Animal Legal Defense Fund student convention that is free for students the afternoon before the conference starts on November 4th. And they can register for that at the same time on the same through the same registration. Will that also be a hybrid event that people can attend online? Yeah, both of them are hybrid events. It's it's the new reality and we're excited that we can reach people that couldn't necessarily travel to Portland. It may be the only gift we get from COVID. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for, for coming on and, and telling us about it. I'm sure a lot of people will be interested in signing up. Thank you so much, Marianne. It was great chatting with you and we can't wait to see everyone in November. All right, let's get to the interview. Dia Andreu recently joined Richmond Law and Policy as senior associate focusing on protecting consumers from false advertising related to animal welfare. Previously, Dia served for more than a decade as a consumer and environmental protection prosecutor in the Monterey County District Attorney's Office in California, bringing civil unfair competition cases, prosecuting greenwashing and other false advertising actions and handling hazardous waste, water pollution, asbestos, pesticide exposure, and other environmental cases. Brooke DeKolf is an associate and animal welfare fellow at Richmond Law and Policy, focusing on animal welfare litigation with a particular emphasis on accountability and transparency in aquaculture. She is a 2021 graduate of Yale Law School, where she was a fellow for the Law, Ethics, and Animals program. Welcome to our hen house, Dia and Brooke. Thanks so much for having us. Hi, nice to be here. Super excited to have you. Super excited to always talk with the folks from Richmond Law. And of course, we're talking about another consumer protection case. Consumer protection has become such an important factor in animal law. And just as a way to start out, because I like to start out with talking about the facts of the case, uh, let's start with the package. As if somebody went into Aldi's and, and saw this package, what would they see? So right on front of product packaging, they would see the labeling would say simple, sustainable seafood. And that's marketed front of product packaging on all of their frozen salmon products, Atlantic salmon products. And there's also something called BAP certification. That's on the label as well, right? What does that mean? So BAP, Best Aquaculture Practices, is like an industry trade group that certifies some fin fish products and other types of fish products. They set a set of standards for what they consider to be the best environmental and sustainability practices for their producers. So it's basically an industry standard. Is this t- is it typical of third-party standards for aquaculture, third-party certification standards for aquaculture? Don't worry, we'll get into in a minute exactly what was happening here that, that got certified by, by BAP, which I've never heard of, I have to say. It's actually the Global Seafood Alliance. That's the trade industry group that issues the the BAP. So it's it's like their product. And as you can imagine, the Global Seafood Alliance, they actually say on their web page, page we are an ally to the seafood industry. So were these claims about this is uh, this is sustainable? And we'll talk about a little bit what that means. And this is BAP certified. <laughs> we'll talk about a little bit what that means. Were they also found in their advertising? It's just on the packages. Yeah, there are additional claims on their website. There are two different cases. There is the nonprofit association case, TFUSA. And in that case, that also concerns website representations. But for the class action case, it's it's simpler to just, you know, focus on the labeling. But there were actually, you know, additional representations made on Aldi's website. 
that's what the it looks like in Aldi. So let's get into the to the nitty gritty here. Tell us a little bit about where this salmon actually comes from. So plaintiffs allege that the salmon comes in part from Chile. Salmon are not native to Chile, so they use a form of aquaculture production known as net pen aquaculture, where the fish are essentially raised in these giant cages or crates or nets, whatever you want to call them, that are connected directly to open ocean or open water. And that's the type of aquaculture that's at issue here. What are the lives of these salmon like? It's a really unfortunate place to be for these salmon. As I said, salmon are not naturally in this type of environment. The net pens themselves are incredibly barren. So there's no form of enrichment for the salmon. They don't have access to different smells, different experiences, places to hide. The stocking density is also quite high. So the fish are really just crowded right next to each other. Uh, combined with a really barren environment, it can lead to aggression amongst fish. Fish that are trying to escape from other fish because of the increased aggression have nowhere to go, nowhere to hide. So they're more susceptible to, you know, bullying, that sort of thing. Because of the open the open water nature of the net pens, fish often escape. They can bring diseases and their own predation effects into the wild wild environment. And just because these net pens are so highly, highly stocked in such a high density confinement type of type of situation, uh, the fishes themselves are particularly susceptible to disease, stress, things that you would expect when you're really, really closely crowded together. Yeah, what kind of diseases do they do they suffer from? So one of the most common is sea lice infestations. Um, these infestations are really, really painful for the fish. And unfortunately, the methods that they use to eradicate the sea lice infestations are equally as painful for the fish. So high pressure, high temperature kind of delousing techniques can be incredibly stressful. Um, and unfortunately, these, these types of uh, infestations are really common in net pen aquaculture. Is this a, a type of aquaculture that's that's taking over? Is it is it becoming more common? I recently interviewed somebody and it was specifically about salmon and it was in the Pacific Northwest, which, you know, sounds like kind of fancy. That's where salmon are supposed to come from. But it sounded exactly like the exact same conditions. Um, is this the way that that most salmon is is raised now? Raised. I don't know whether that's the right word. They're not really raised. Kept these days. So I think it's an increasingly common usage. We do see some like inland type um, tank facilities, but really this is this is simpler for producers in a lot of ways. You know that the water is already there; they're just kind of building up the pen, the net pens themselves. So a lot of the work has been done for them. You mentioned there are two lawsuits here, Dia, and one is in D.C. and the other is in federal district court in Illinois, I believe. And I actually wanted to know why it's in Illinois. But so let's start with the Illinois case and then. We'll we'll just follow up with a little bit on the on the DC case. So it's in federal district court in Illinois. As I, as I said, why why is it in Illinois? The, as far as I can tell, it's a New York case. I mean, it's following New York law. Yes, that's one of the kind of mysterious things about class action cases. Uh, it was filed in the the Illinois district because that is where Aldi is headquartered. Okay. And so with class, yeah, with class actions, you can bring you know the plaintiffs may be from a different state than what the case is filed in. There's a lot of causes of action here, but there's only two that are really at play at at least at the moment this motion was decided, which we're going to be talking about. And they're both under New York law. And yes. can you just just kind of summarize for us what New York? I think there are two statutes that that really relate to false advertising or deceptive practices, and they're kind of similar. Can you just tell us what these laws require? Yeah, they actually are quite similar, but basically one is 
is specific to false advertising, one section, and one is more a general, like deceptive trade practice that kind of encompasses the other, but they are separate causes of action. And in both situations, um, for both code sections, uh, to survive, the plaintiffs hack basically have to plausibly claim that they were misled by something that the business did, in this case, the advertising, the claims at issue. All right. So there's a motion to dismiss and, and let's, let's go through some of these, um, some of these issues that came up because they brought up a lot of the issues that are, that are relevant here. I think the first argument, correct me if I have this wrong, is that the plaintiff failed to state a claim that the advertising was misleading because of this BAP certification. It claims to be sustainable, but it's in the context of the BAP certification. Is that right? And are they they're legitimately arguing that you can't state a even state a claim that this yeah. is not sustainable just because they have something that says BAP on their package? All right, I'm going to stop writing about it to let you explain it. <laughs> well, yeah, you're correct, and that's basically the main argument um, is that they're basically saying as a matter of law, this label is not misleading because there's this BAP logo and that tells the consumer what sustainable means. So kind of. To get further into the argument, you know, our com- the plaintiff's complaint alleges that, you know, when a consumer sees sustainable on a fish label, they think that means the animals are treated better, they're raised with higher animal welfare standards, that there are higher environmental standards involved. And there's actually consumer surveys out that that, in- that basically support this notion. What Aldi is arguing here is that, oh, no. Our definition of sustainable is basically just that the species is allowed to continue to propagate. Consumers couldn't possibly be misled that it indicates um, a higher standard. And also, even if it did indicate a higher standard, we have this logo here so they can go to this. They can, you know, Google BAP apparently and figure out what that means. And therefore, no reasonable consumer could possibly be misled by this label. That's kind of like the gist of their argument. And fortunately, the court found that not to be the case. The court basically said, we're not sure consumers even know what BAP stands for or whether it's legitimate or not. And this is a motion to dismiss. So we have to take all facts in the complaint and view them in the light most favorable to the plaintiff. And the plaintiff has indeed, you know, plausibly pled that they were misled. So it really seems like a nonsensical argument. And you've made this clear, but I just want to make it crystal clear. It just says BAP. It doesn't say BAP and then list all of the standards that they use, like like or anything, it says BAP. Like how would anybody know what the hell that's supposed to be? And it's not even, as you point out, or I think the court pointed out, it's not even right next to, like on top of the sustainability claim. It's kind of in a in a somewhat different place on the label. I mean, a label is small amount of real estate, so it's not that far away. But you would never know that they were related in any way. But they do make other arguments, and the second argument has to do, I think, with some of the the publications that that you cited, the ones that you were just talking about, which kind of explain what consumers consider sustainable to mean. Uh, what is their problem with you offering evidence as to as to that like really relevant fact? Yeah, so I think they were basically trying to say, well, there's no survey on this exact phrase. So you those surveys don't support, you know, that the plaintiff was misled because there's no actual survey that exactly asks, what do you think, you know, simple, sustainable seafood means? And the court actually said at this point, you know, this isn't even the right point to get into that. All that needs to happen in a complaint is a simple, plain statement that puts a defendant on notice of what they're facing in this lawsuit. 
the citations to those studies were in support of that, but this is not the appropriate time to get into whether the studies, you know, the consumer surveys are appropriate or not. So the court basically kind of put that off for later, but our view is that the consumer surveys are relevant. You know, they do talk about fish, sustainability, and it, it, sh- it shouldn't be so narrow that only an exact survey on this exact product with this exact term is relevant. So, Yeah, these aren't really unusual. I mean, what sustainable means is not an unusual term. This is a bit of an aside at the moment, but maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm actually a little surprised at how strongly people do believe that the term sustainable refers to animal welfare particularly in the fish context. Can you talk a little bit about these studies? Because I was very pleasantly surprised to hear that that, that you do have that evidence. Yeah, I, I think it's really fascinating to see that um, people view sustainability, like the plaintiffs allege in their complaint, in really a broad and pretty varied amount of ways. But some studies that, we, that are referenced in the complaint specifically say that when consumers are looking at terms like sustainability, one of the things that they consider is actually fish welfare is that the products are sourced in accordance with higher environmental and animal welfare standards. A lot of this information is referenced in the complaint because it just, you know, provides support for the plausible allegations therein. Uh, my guess, and this is just me guessing, is most people might in- interpret it more broadly than the way Aldi wants to interpret it, just like you're not driving them into extinction, to include environmental issues like the pollution that you mentioned. But um I'm really glad, you know, and when I started thinking about it, it occurred to me that people are so eager to think that the food they're buying and the food that they want is benign, that they will attach a lot of meaning to any any statement that a company makes about it. And finally, there's a way to make that that naivete work against the company that is deceiving these consumers, rather in favor of the company that is, uh, you know, using these terms, hoping that consumers will think they mean a lot more than they say they mean. All right. So there's also a puffery claim. I thought this was particularly ridiculous, but but can you explain just for those who don't do this kind of law, what puffery is? Because it's one of the best terms in law. It's so much fun to say what it means and what their claim he is here that there was puffery. So puffery essentially is a non-actionable kind of claim. It's either so broad, so ambiguous, so up in the air that it's not challenged, uh, can't be challenged under the law. Um, And Aldi essentially made that argument here that their simple, sustainable seafood promise um, was puffery because it's not really tied to a specific commitment, a specific idea of sustainability. Um, It's just too broad generally to be actionable. Yeah, so puffery would be, you know, like the best coffee in the world. Yes. Something that you would assume they're exaggerating. How they, like how they with a straight face argue that the term sustainable means nothing. Right. <laughs> like how do they do this? I don't know. Like they're arguing what it means that, and then they're arguing that nobody thinks it means anything. Then why would they use up their very valuable real estate on that package to, to put it on there? And actually the other argument that I got from the court's decision is this particular plaintiff. And at the moment, I should make clear that at the moment, though you've talked about this as a class action, at the moment, I think it's still just a claim by one person hoping to become a class action. Is that a legitimate way to put this? Yes. And the phrase is putative class action. Ah, okay. And finally, there there, there was the question of injury. Um, what kind of injury does she have to allege that she suffered? I mean, she she paid for salmon, she bought salmon, she got salmon. So what 
what is the injury that she is asserting that she she suffered? I think most of us can imagine that, but let's just lay it out. So I think Plaintiff Roth, Rawson here is not saying that um, she bought salmon, she received salmon. She's saying she bought salmon with the sustainability representations on the package, and that what she received was salmon that didn't comport with those sustainability representations. So that's really where the injury lies. It's a matter of the fact that you know the, the representations were on the product package, and that whether the salmon was edible or whatever was included in some of the briefing, she didn't receive the salmon that she expected to purchase that complied with these provisions or representation. And I know, you know, obviously the goal is to bring a class action, but assuming that this, this is, she just brought this case all by herself, what would be her damages? So that's actually a kind of a complicated calculation, um, an analysis that we hire experts for that will do an analysis that basically looks at how much was this representation worth to the consumer when they purchased the product? And they'll, I'm not an expert in this, but they will, you know, plug this into a complicated equation and come out with a price differential. Okay, you know, the typical price of salmon is this, and this representation was worth X to the consumer. And that that's kind of how damages are calculated. And are there attorney's fees in these cases? Yes. In the class action case, um, that is something that's recoverable either in a settlement or at, if you go all the way to trial and get a judgment. So, Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit more about about how the court dealt with her, the parts of her pleading that referred to the class action. But before that, I just want to check because there's also a breach of warranty claim. And my understanding is that the issues are not significantly different from the consumer deception claim. But if, the, if, if I'm wrong, can you can you correct me? Yeah, no, you're correct. They're pretty substantively similar on those points. Okay. So let's talk about the fact that she also also pled violations of of consumer protection laws in, I think, 33 other states, even though she didn't buy salmon in, in any of those states. So how does this work? And, you know, of course, as you point out, that's because you hope to have a lot more plaintiffs. Um, how does it work when you bring a class action? You called it a putative class action. At what point does it become a class action so that these other statutes will actually be relevant, which they're not at the moment? Yeah. So generally, um, as a case proceeds after some discovery to kind of, you know, find out how much, where the products were sold, how much were sold, which states, et cetera, plaintiff will make a, a motion for class certification. And that's where hopefully the judge will decide that this plaintiff, you know, is, is a suitable representative, that counsel representative, and that, you know, this case is suitable for class action treatment, meaning, you know, the consumers, even though they're in different states, operating under different statutes, their claims and the injuries that they've, um, you know, suffered are similar enough to be treated as a class action. It, and it's much more efficient, of course, as you mentioned, calculating damages, you know, one plaintiff buying one package of salmon, that's going to be a few cents, right? Is it worth to bring a case? But if you have millions of consumers around the country buying millions of packages of salmon that have been misled by these representations, and then it, it makes more sense you know, it's more viable lawsuit and, and it's going to get some traction and hopefully cause some change. Now, I, I didn't really understand why. I mean, since since this is exactly how you're litigating it and this is a putative, putative class action, why there was any question. And the court did go into quite a bit of discussion of this, whether it's a standing issue or a class certification issue, whether these these causes of action based on currently not relevant statutes, but hope to be relevant statutes, should be dismissed at this point. 
Can you just elaborate on that a bit? What are some of the questions that arise in in the way you plead a case like this and, and whether the court will allow these causes of action to stand, which the court did here? Right. Sure. Unfortunately, there seems to be a trend in some um, circuits in the country where the court basically is saying for these federal class actions that you literally have to have a plaintiff from every state, like on the pleadings. So there have been some situations where the the what is it called? The um, the multi-state class has been dismissed. So that I think was what Aldi was trying to do here. And fortunately, the court said no. At least for now, you know, our circuit doesn't operate that way um, and we're going to let this proceed for now. It just seems to be continuing the trend of, you know, courts somewhat disfavoring class actions and finding, you know, new and different ways to to shut shut them down. So that unfortunately seems to be a trend. So you would have to do all of that legwork of finding all of those plaintiffs before you even file a case. Now I get it. I, I also pulled out this quote, which seemed kind of troubling, I think is on a somewhat different issue. The court recognizes that asserting a class action under consumer protection statutes of multiple states may not be manageable. Why would that not be manageable? Isn't that like relatively common in class actions that there are different statutes from different states? So that's definitely true. Consumer protection statutes do vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But when the court's considering whether or not it's unmanageable, and I think you see this in our pleading um, that we reference 33 states, they're really looking at the similarities between the consumer protection statutes. So a case that would be unmanageable would be a case where the, I don't know, 40 consumer protection statutes vary too significantly between each other. So the causes of action are just so separate that litigating all of those on a single class basis would be very difficult for the court to do. And I think you could see this in our pleading. This is why the, the jurisdictions listed are have really substantially similar consumer protection statutes, similar requirements, similar causes of action. I see. That's why it's not all 50, because every state has a consumer protection statute, right? I believe all states do. And I'm not sure if if the fact that it wasn't 50 states was because Aldi's not in all 50 states. I'm not certain about that. But maybe it's a combination of the two things. Yes. Okay. All right. So uh, as either you or I said, you did survive this for the moment and the court is allowing this to proceed on and, and let you go forward, turning this into a class action and finding those plaintiffs. How do you find those plaintiffs? Once a class is certified, notices will go out in different, you know, there might be a print notice in magazines there may be websites, commercials. You know, have you purchased this product? You may have been injured and, you know, go to this website to file a claim, that type of thing. So that's how the other plaintiffs from the other states will be notified and found. It sounds like a big job, but it sounds very exciting. All right, finally, and you had mentioned this before, there was also uh, an injunction sought in this case, and this was the one piece of the case that was not, at least at the moment, successful. And can you just explain the court's thinking of why she wasn't entitled to an injunction of having survived this motion? Yes. So this is in another unfortunate trend in class action cases. Um, so basically what the courts are saying is that you know, injunctive relief would be basically causing the company to stop what they're doing, stop using this label, stop falsely advertising. And the court is saying, well, you plaintiff, you already know that this label is misleading. So you don't have a threat of future harm because you, Rawson, know that when you go into the grocery store and you see this product with this label, you're not going to be misled because now you know what the true practices are with these salmon. 
So therefore, because there's no threat of future injury, you are not entitled to injunctive relief. And that is a trend, unfortunately, in class action cases. And so the court actually did dismiss that part of the, the complaint. So going forward, you know, that's not a possibility any further in this class action case. So it's kind of like a catch-22. You know, you can never you can never get injunctive relief, basically, if you're if you're a class action plaintiff. Right. Well, you could win, but then you probably wouldn't need injunctive relief. Right. You could win the case, but you won't. Presumably, if you win, they will fix their label. One would hope. We, we will assume. <laughs> I think that's everything, unless there's anything else you want to mention about about the Illinois case. But as we mentioned, there's also a D.C. case, which is on very similar facts. It's also based on this label. I think you mentioned it's also based on on the similar allegations in the website. So and you mentioned the plaintiff, but can you repeat that for us? Who's that plaintiff in that D.C. case? Yes, the plaintiff is called Toxin Free USA. They are a nonprofit group that is dedicated to a number of causes, basically involving truthful labeling of food. So this is right up their alley. You know, the reason why there's a separate case actually kind of is connected to our last discussion about the injunctive relief. So increasingly in these class action cases, we plead injunctive relief, but it's denied because of the reason I explained earlier. In this case, this is in the uh, District of Columbia Superior Court. There is a fairly strong consumer statute and it allows for nonprofits like we call them TFUSA for short, and they are able to get injunctive relief. So that's basically another avenue. So it's why there's kind of companion cases, because we can get, we know we're going to get injunctive relief in DC court if we prevail. What would be the jurisdiction of that injunctive relief? Would would they need to stop using this label all over the country? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, no, but in reality, probably they will, right? I used to be a prosecutor in California and, you know, we would get kind of the same issue where, oh, we're going to have to change all of our products now just for California. Yes. <laughs> and that's a good thing because in reality, it, it'll be difficult to have, oh, we're just going to sell um, this one certain set of products in DC and everywhere else, we're going to keep the labels. Again, and that kind of um, reciprocal, that's a good reason why we have a class action in addition, just in case. So we cover the national front, we cover DC, we get injunctive relief and hopefully, you know, practice changes in the long run. I see, because I was mystified as to why there were these two cases, though I was thinking it might be that the, the law, I mean, I know that the law in D.C. is is extremely favorable. I mean, the most favorable for consumer protection. A aside from the relief that can be granted, does the statute significantly vary? I just want to mention to listeners that we've talked about this statute in more detail before on other cases. So there's definitely a lot to learn here. But get back to my question, how does how does the statute differ in significant ways? The CPPA def is a really friendly consumer protection statute in that it does apply a lot of broad relief. Injunctive relief is the first thing that we mentioned, but also you don't have to prove under the statute that a consumer was actually deceived or misled. So that's something that's, you know, pretty different from other consumer protection statutes and unique to unique to DC. Yeah. So another kind of important um, difference. So difference that the DC statute has is that nonprofits are basically, um, almost automatically granted standing. And standing is a big issue. Many consumer statutes throughout the country don't allow a nonprofit to file a case. In California, actually, they can, but unfortunately due to, um, under the California's unfair competition law, something called Prop 64 in 2004 made it really hard for nonprofits to get standing as opposed to you know law enforcement prosecutors. So 
you know, we have a great statute in California that also does not require that a consumer actually be misled, but it's really hard for nonprofits to prove standing. DC basically says, if you're a nonprofit and you're representing the general public, you have standing to bring a case and you don't have to prove injury, economic injury, that type of thing. So that's another great reason why DC is a good venue for a nonprofit to bring a case. I know that the class action is crucial to like, to really making the point, but if you were just to be successful in DC, that would actually go a long way to making them uh, stop using the label. Uh, It's just that you don't get any damages. Is that right? Yes. Um, The case that is uh, the complaint does not ask for damages. It basically asks for for practice changes, for injunctive relief, and of course, attorney's fees along with that. But yes, no damages. So, All right. So what are the next steps in each of these cases? I, I think these these decisions are relatively recent. Right. Uh, the the uh, DC case, the motion to dismiss was denied in February. And in the Illinois class action case, that was denied in May. And so both cases, the defendant, has, Aldi, has filed their answer and discovery is underway in both cases. So the next step, okay, we're going to go through discovery, but most likely it's possible that Aldi may try to file a motion for summary judgment. We don't know. And somewhere along the line, um, in, in the class action case, at least, we'll be filing a motion for class certification. As a more general matter, what are the benefits and challenges of using consumer protection laws to to make changes to animal agriculture, to just help animals in general? Why is this an area that you think has legs? Companies know that consumers increasingly care about animal treatment, animal welfare, and they all, they also know that consumers are increasingly eco-conscious. So, you know, they're basically increasing the amount of humane washing and green washing they use. And so that's bad. Uh, you know, the, we think these kind of cases are important because number one, they actually do protect consumers, right? Consumers, consumers are being misled. And they are generally shelling out more money for things that they think are better for the environment, better for animals, you know, that type of thing. And also, we think these cases are important because we think it's important to stop this humane washing and greenwashing because the, the true way that animals are treated should be, should be known. And if companies are able to keep selling their animal products, their meat products, their fish products, their dairy products, their egg products and get away with it because consumers, like you mentioned earlier, they they want to feel good about what they're buying. They want to feel good about what they're eating. And we want to stop that. We want to stop, the, the, you know, the if consumers want to keep buying these things, they should at least know the truth about what's happening. So, and, so, and using consumer protection statutes and false advertising, sometimes but not always, they can get around issues of preemption and things like that. So that's another good reason to use them. Yeah, no, I've always been a big fan and I'm really excited to see how much is is happening. And I'm very thankful to the District of Columbia for seeing that great statute. But I'm super excited about the fact that it, we're we're starting to see more more arguments in uh, for class actions in this area because I think class actions really scare companies who are doing bad things. So, so I'm all for it. Before I let you go, I'm just curious, why fish? I mean, particularly when when your passion is animal welfare, it seems more challenging to get people to care about the welfare of fish. Am, am I wrong? I think that's definitely true. But I think just because something is challenging doesn't mean we should shy away from it. Fish in particular, I mean, the number of animals involved here is just staggering. And, you know, we're hearing a lot of industry lines saying like, 
fish directed primarily to the public, you know, the public who, as Dia mentioned, is increasingly conscious and aware of what they're eating and what they're putting into their families' bodies, um, that, you know, fish are the greener, healthier, alternative protein source, where fish fish facilities are not like these CAFOs that you've been seeing. They're different. They're better. And so I think targeting fish in that way is really important because it's a matter of raising public consciousness. Um, and I think also, you know, the science has just been really proliferating recently in terms of who fish are as individuals, what they're what they're capable of, what um, their lives are like. And so I think as a lot of that kind of information comes out, people are becoming increasingly willing to listen about fish welfare issues. So in a sense, it's the perfect time to, you know, take a stance on these kind of things. Yeah. And I mean, the environmental issues are, are so, so huge. Well, of course they are for land-based factory farming as well, but it's always good to have that double punch um, when you're arguing animal welfare, that it's also really horrible for the environment. And certainly you have a case here that seems to exactly fit that. Why Aldi of all places? I don't even go to Aldi. I don't really, I've never been near an Aldi. So, uh, so I don't know a lot about them. So why are you picking on them? Part of what we do, right, is like our, we're really worried about these conscious consumers who care about the food and the products that they're purchasing. And Aldi's created a bit of a market for, you know, feeding, feeding your family, but in a healthful, uh, seasonal way. They'll do like rotations of products, things like that. But they're targeted toward a much lower price point. They're making this food kind of more accessible to everyone. And I think when we're thinking in terms of consumer deception, the exact type of people that we want to protect are the people who, you know, are really looking for ways to adequately and kindly feed their bodies and their families' bodies, but in a way that's affordable. And so I think that was a pretty big issue in this case. Yeah, that makes total sense. Because, I mean, when I was a kid, salmon was, that was a a luxury food. I mean, nobody ate salmon. Now it's just everywhere. I mean, it's what happens when they figure out how to factory farm anything. All of a sudden it's everywhere. But people probably still have that idea of it as a as a premium food. And it is tragic that people are being deceived in this way. So thanks for sharing all of this. We'll be looking forward to hearing what happens. You, ho- you still have a long way to go on this case, but I'm excited about it. And thanks for sharing it with us today. It's great to talk to you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. So thanks so much for joining us on the Animal Law Podcast. We will be back next month with a new show. Thanks so much to Dia and Brooke for sharing their thoughts and expertise with us. Thank you to Vicki Beechler and Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for their help in producing the podcast. In the meantime, if you like what you hear, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please consider leaving us a good review on Apple Podcasts. And if you are able, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at ourhenhouse.org. And thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you.